Our faith is faith in someone else's faith. And in the greatest matters, this is most the case. Our belief in truth itself, for instance, that there is a truth and that our minds and it are made for each other. What is it but a passionate affirmation of desire in which our social system backs us up? We want to have a truth. We want to believe that our experiments and studies and decisions must put us in a continually better and better position towards it. This is going to be our first episode uh, live. We do have our pilot one that I'll put out eventually through the Patreon. Um, but we've decided to go with the name of uh, A Lucid Life, right? Right. Yeah, A Lucid That's Life. Um, which I think is pretty good. Uh, I'll, I'll be one of your hosts. And my name is Pete Mason, and I'm a former graduate. Well, just a regular graduate with a, with only a philosophy minor, and the co-host right now is I'm my name's Matthew Ward, and I'm also a recent graduate from Western Colorado University, uh, majoring in sociology, minoring in philosophy. Nice. Yeah. Nice. Um. So today we uh, decided to read William James. The will to believe. Matt, you chose this. Why did you choose this? Why did you want? Why did you think this would be good? Like, what about it really caught your eye? I guess. Well, last time we talked, uh, we actually we talked about skepticism, mm -hmm. and I thought this would number one be a good um, critique of that. He, you know, he mentions skepticism multiple times, usually in a critical way in his, in this essay. Uh, so I thought of it because of that. And, um, I also thought of it because I've dealt with, uh, belief in my own life and it's something, it's kind of an ongoing issue for me. What, what do I, what do I believe? And so I wanted to get some clear thinking on that. Yeah. I think that's a big issue with, uh, everyone today. I mean, uh, our generation, I think, has one of the lowest rates of individuals joining institutional religions, but it doesn't mean that uh, our generation is any less um, faithful, in a sense. It's just we don't know what we're faithful in. Um, That's and, a good way to put it. And he actually says in the essay somewhere something like that, like we're, he says in the essay, at some point, something like we're all believers at bottom. Um, and that's why it's legitimate for our volitional nature to come into the, come into the game when we um, take up beliefs in things and not just our intellect. Yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. So William James is an American philosopher. He was born in uh, 1842 and died in 1910. Uh, he was a psychologist and the first educator to offer uh, psychology courses in the United States. Um, which is pretty interesting that he was a philosopher and a psychologist. Um, mm -hmm. Kind of just shows you how deep the roots because that's what I have my degree in is psychology. And then I have a minor in philosophy and and English, um, but psychology does have some deep roots back to philosophy, just like with a lot of the sciences. And, um, I mean, even, even theology and other, other major subjects usually have pretty deep roots, uh, that are tied to philosophical ones. So James is considered a leading thinker of uh, late 19th century, one of the most influential philosophers in uh, the United States. He's a pro proponent of the philosophy known as pragmatism. And you see that pragmatism very much alive in this essay. Like when he talks, like in the essay, when he talks about, you know, in the very beginning section, you know, the liveness or deadness of any hypothesis is measured by a man man or woman's willingness to act on it um that's 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 basically pragmatism right there like what are what are we willing to act on um it is what shows what we actually believe yeah that's absolutely true um i mean i never read james william james in college because i didn't take philosophy of uh religion or science, which I really wish I had, but um, just scheduling, I couldn't. I, I discovered him actually while I was trying to expand my philosophy library, and I found what he what he is known as known for, as you said, is pragmatism. Um, and I've read a bit of it, and it's uh, I haven't got really into the meat and potatoes of it like I want to, but um, yeah, that's what he's yeah, absolutely. That's one of the biggest contributions to philosophy. That he's done, and and it's surprising how recent of a contribution to that is that pragmatism side, right? Or as he as it's titled in the book that I have, pragmatism, a new name for some old ways of thinking. So that's a, that's just a little bit about William James. I don't think we need to go too in depth on him. Yeah, I think that's enough. We're kind of gonna re so since you've read this the most, I only read this once last night, and I was briefly looking over it before I um, earlier this morning. Um, before I had to go do things, uh, but I I briefly relooked over it. But since you've actually I guess reread you've read it twice and looked over it once or more, um, do you want to give a little bit more better summary? <laughs> more better. <laughs> I'm an English writer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can I can give a summary. Um, oh, okay. It's, it's definitely. Uh, He's he's such his writing is so um uh, he's, he's a great writer he's also extremely deep like I was reading this and I was absolutely um because each philo I mean almost every philosopher in a way uh I, I was just thinking about this um this morning uh, is that a lot of the philosophers will they'll they'll get like very they'll just get deep into philosophy in which it's the terms. And a lot of the times it will become this word soup on the page that you yeah. you have to get through. 
every philosopher does it to a certain degree or more. I'd say like Kant, Kant is a big, a, a very bad example of that in which he will just get really into this just thick soup of philosophical words in which by a sentence or by a paragraph or even by a page, you're, you just, you're like, what did I read? What, what? What did I just read? It makes no sense. I, I know I'm reading English, but it, it's very weird. Um, I'll do it to a certain degree. Um, uh, the ones that do it the least I found are, is Plato and Nietzsche, which, uh, funny enough, they're the most popular because they don't do it. Interesting. They do it the least. And uh, William James does do it a few times throughout this essay, but what I liked about him is he would do it, and then he would come back give you a more solidified easier understanding of what he just said mm -hmm. and then he'd transition into this kind of a poetic form because i found a lot uh, there were several paragraphs that just kind of ended on these very deep poetic styles that were that really kind of continued to draw you further into the essay and i thought were nice yeah that's i think that's the perfect way to describe like what like how he wrote the essay, like, yeah, there's points, there's philosophical points where you have to pause a minute and see what, wait, what did I just read? But there's also a very poetic and like poetic form to it. Um, artistic form, I would say, like he, he uses like real world examples um, and, yeah. you know, oh. fictional examples too. Uh, I, I would use the word when philosophers start using a bunch of philosophy words. And the funny thing about philosophy words is they're words that you encounter every day, but they've, they've redefined them very specifically. And then they like reusing those over and over. Um, I, I would call it almost like a pontificating. They're just pontificating and they're trying to explain an idea that because so, with a lot of these philosophers, they're on the edge of they're on an edge of a wave. They're trying to define or or speak to something that hasn't really been well spoken of before. So they are grasping at straws. Um, you find this a lot in David Hume in which he's just on the very cusp of trying to figure out all these things that Kant was able to put together. But, uh, and it does come through. Uh, funny enough though, Hume seems to be better at grasping at straws than Kant is. <laughs> Yeah. Or it's a translation issue. I don't know. Right. All right. So I'll let you get into uh, summarizing this a little bit more. Yeah, I, I think I'll start with, um, it's kind of in the middle of the essay, but it's basically the thesis he says he's defending after he establishes preliminaries, which I'll get into. He says the, the thesis he's plans to defend here is our passional nature, not only lawfully may but must decide an option between propositions whenever it is a genuine option. So this not by its nature be decided on intellectual grounds. I believe the question open is itself a passional decision, just like deciding yes or no, and is attended with the same risk of losing the truth. So that's very, you know, even says it a sentence later, it's very abstractly um, stated, but what he's saying is that 
at a certain point when our intellect can't decide based on the evidence we have which which of two or more propositions is true we have to think about uh, how our will comes into play like yeah so he's saying at some point um you know there's certain things like we don't have evidence for one way or another whether something's true but our, our very act of believing that something is true can sometimes bring it to pass. Mm -hmm. He uses that example later on um, talking about moral questions are a major area where we need to like make, make a leap of faith in what we believe and then thereby bring about the fact of what we believe. It was interesting because he did, he did kind of frame it as it's a, le a leap of faith. Um, but I found it, it, it was interesting that he never, he, he didn't quote um, any Kierkegaard. And Kierkegaard is the big, a, a leap to faith guy. But he doesn't, yeah. uh, uh, James doesn't quote him at all. Um, I, I thought that was interesting. But I'll let you continue on. Yeah, that's a good, well, that's a good point. Um, I thought of Kierkegaard several times, especially because I'm reading another book where that's based on uh, Kierkegaard's ideas right now. But because, yeah, Kierkegaard would, would totally agree with James here. Yeah, I, I think so. Well, let's get into the pre preliminaries. Like, So he talks about the liveness or deadness of a hypothesis. Yeah, okay. Um, the preliminaries. I just want to say this the, um, as a critique. He spends well over half of the essays of the essay on the preliminaries, which I was like, Oh, come on, man. I wanted some yeah. more meat in this. Cause like, he's like, all right. And that's it for the preliminaries. And I looked at the page count and, uh, cause it's, it's like a 20, 20, 22, 23 page long essay or something in that range. Um, by the time he actually gets into the meat and potatoes, he's set up the preliminaries. He's kind of gotten you to where you need to be. You only have nine pages left. Right. <laughs> and I was like, you spent more than half of the essay just trying to get us to to a, a point where uh, we can understand what you're going to say. That's okay. That's very, that's, I feel like that's kind of what philosophers usually do. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, uh, do you know if this was this one of his lectures? Because I know with some of his writings, he they were lectures that were then written down into an essay format or into a written format. Yeah, they, it was a lecture, as far as I know. Because yeah, I think that because mm -hmm. it felt like a lecture in which he's he's um, as as any professor would do would be he would set up all all these things and then at the end or the last half would then start reaching a specific point that either you would agree with or not agree with. And also explain why in my copy, there were certain points in which I was reading it and it didn't make, it just didn't make sense to me for some reason. <laughs> I was like, it, it, I, I, I had to start reading a lot of it out loud. And then I was like, Oh, this is more like a, this is a lecture. This is this is someone speaking because yeah. it has the cadence of someone speaking. Um, whereas when I was just reading in my head, I was I I was getting tripped up on certain little things that didn't didn't come across well. Yeah, he yeah, it's definitely a lecture, and 
yeah, you can hear that in the diction. So to get back to so like the first preliminaries, these states are like uh, the liveness or des deadness of a hypothesis. So he says a live hypothesis is one which appeals as a real possibility to him whom it is proposed. Mm-hmm. And he gets into saying like he referring to some Muslim doctrine uh, called the Mahdi and how that's probably a dead hypothesis to everybody he's speaking to and like at Harvard University at this time yeah. in America. Um, that's the Redeemer in Islam, like the Mahdi. That, you know, that that Redeemer of Islam is coming to the earth at some point. It's probably a dead hypothesis for them. So because the but, footnotes, you have a better idea. When I was reading it, because my copy doesn't, it's it's just a work of his essays. And um, they're very loosely put oh, together. Okay. Okay. So they don't have footnotes or uh, since my, I mean, my book doesn't even have an introduction on him. So, <laughs> um, yeah. So having footnotes, I guess, is a, is a bit of a pusher. So I, I didn't have anything really to go off of. And and um, so I was just like, oh, well, I'll just follow along. I, I figure it's something. Um, but yeah, I guess he be, – but because I just was following along and didn't know or didn't even bother to look it up, I felt like that was a pretty good point in which, yeah, that's a dead hypothesis to me because I have no idea what you just said. <laughs> exactly. That's – that's a point, actually. Yeah, that's his point. Is that he, you know, there is there's certain foreign religions that uh, people believe in very devoutly, and that we've probably never heard of. Oh yeah. Um, but the the hypothesis of that religion actually being true is completely dead to us because we've grown up in a context and culture. And he refers to this later too, but this context and culture we've grown up in makes no reference to that whatsoever. Yeah. So, yeah. but then he brings, well, go ahead. Yeah, he brought up a pretty powerful point. I don't know if I wrote this down. Uh, oh, yeah. As a rule, we disbelieve all facts and theories for which we have no use. Yeah, that's, yeah. Uh, that's, which, yeah. Exactly. Uh, he, he, I don't know where he says that in. I just wrote that down. I was like, oh, that's a good quote. There's some really good quotes in here. Yeah. So that, that's basically what I was just going to say is that that's, and that's the pragmatism coming in, mm-hmm. you know, what, what is the use and consequences of believing this or that thing are, is a question a pragmatist might ask. Um, and that's, that's his approach in the book or in, excuse me, in the essay so now he gives alternative options to this Muslim, you know, dead hypothesis to talk about living hypotheses. And he says, like, if I say be an agnostic or a Christian, that's a very that's a living option, he says, because that's that's something that in this culture, we know what those terms refer to. Yeah. And so we, we have a choice there of what, where are we going to put our faith there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, yeah, it's a good point. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So those, those are living options because they, into our, in our context, those could, those make sense to us to some degree or other, even if we're, 
all on one side or the other of that question, be agnostic or be Christian. Like we know we can, a Christian can understand what an agnostic is and vice versa. Yeah. Oh no, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I guess it's, it's another way to refer to uh, just kind of cultural knowledge in general. You know, are you culturally aware of these certain ideas? You know, um, the U.S. has been really good at being kind of so pervasive in our cultural influence that I don't think there's any place around the world that wouldn't know Mickey Mouse. But I doubt we know some uh, cartoon uh, character from South Africa or um, India. Right. Um, and, you know, this is kind of an open question, though, because if you're really a Christian or really an agnostic, it's possible that the uh, the opposite perspective is dead to you in some sense. And he mentions that like there's some, you know, if you if the religious hypothesis that he brings up later is completely dead to you, then you can stop reading now. Yeah. So that's. I'll get into that later. Is kind of my burning question for this essay, but um, it's just an interesting point to note for now. Yeah. What was the What was the next thing that he set up? Because um, I'm able to remember the live, the living and dead hypothesis, um, and then there's mm-hmm. the other, the um, uh, the differences in opinion or uh, yeah. option. I guess not uh, not opinion options. Um, right. And he breaks it down into three sections. Was there something in between that that I'm forgetting? No, no, that's that's right. The breaking down into three parts is is right after oh, the okay. living and dead hypothesis discussion. Okay, cool. <laughs> I was like, was there something in between that? I don't remember. <laughs> so, yeah. So he he then gets into is the option, you know, being agnostic or a Christian, for example. That's just one example. Mm-hmm. Um. Is that option forced or avoidable? Like, so like there's, he just talks about in general how options are forced or avoidable. Like there's some options where, you know, you can, you can be indifferent. Mm -hmm. Like he he says, like he gives the example, um, choose between going out with your umbrella or with, choose between going out with your umbrella or without it. He doesn't offer you a forced option because that's, you could just stay inside. You don't have to go out at all. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that part in which, yeah. In which, uh, um, there, there are some options that, yeah, are forced and some aren't. Um, yeah. But then the example he gives for like a forced one, if he says either accept this truth or go without it, he, he puts on you a forced option because there's no standing place outside of the alternative. Mm-hmm. So that's one, another thing to consider the forced or avoidable nature of the option. And then there's momentous or trivial. So is this an option that's going to come again or, or do we have to decide now and, or else lose the, <laughs> lose the alternative option forever? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, I, I I like that section where he's talking about the the difference between moment, moment, momentous uh, options and um, trivial ones, and uh, I, th- I thought he did a great job of powerfully putting it. You know that throughout life you do come across these options, these these events that 
in reality, they only present themselves once. It's those once in a lifetime opportunities and, um, you have to decide whether or not to take them. Yeah. So he said, so like to describe what a trivial option would be, he says the option is trivial when the opportunity is not unique, when a stake is insignificant or when the decision is reversible, if it later proves unwise. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's another point. Next, I want to get into talking kind of his essay is kind of a critique of this guy named um, William Kingdom Clifford. Yeah, Clifford. Clifford's brought up a lot. I didn't. I don't know anything about. Is he? Is he a philosopher? Yeah. So a footnote explains uh, he's he was the uh, the British philosopher and mathematician whose essay, The Ethics of Belief, defends the view that it is wrong to believe anything on insufficient evidence. Oh, interesting. And that's okay. that's what. That's that's the very point that James is critiquing in this essay, that there are situations where um, it's necessary for <laughs> it, it's necessary and good to go without in without sufficient evidence. Yeah, this essay is, is built on, a, you know, the a critique of people that veto and condemn people that believe things on insufficient evidence or yeah and like the like the people that think that you know pure scientists and um atheists that criticize religious people for believing things on insufficient evidence that's who he is criticizing yeah um i i i found the quote that that reminded me of what he was talking about and he does talk about it relates to this point in which that they criticize it, and um, from this this point of view that, well, we just don't have enough information, so therefore we shouldn't act. And um, he later on goes to say that uh, there um, he was talking about there's there's two there's these two um, important qualities that we must know the truth, we must avoid error. Right. And. Um, He's he's uh, he ends up advocating. I'd say uh, we must know the truth, even if it means that we have if even if we encounter errors, he uh, right. he found that better than uh, uh, we must avoid error, um, which at all cost, at all cost yeah. uh, which that that um, relates to what you're talking about there, in which um, a lot of these individuals seem to take the approach that well because we don't have all the necessary information we should try and avoid the error of being wrong um to find um the truth he's advocating for our right to know to make a leap of faith basically yeah yeah believe in things even if along the way we we get disillusioned many times by by believing in things and for him, remember, believing in things means acting upon them. Yeah. Okay. So he's he's trying to get us, like, he uses the, the example of, you know, a battlefield. And it's it's worth it to go out and fight on the battlefield and maybe get injured. And, may, and also maybe succeed. And, yeah. and all the while learn along the way. You know, he's he's saying don't don't be standing on the sideline as, and you know, always as a spectator 
And he, he basically makes the point that we can't do that anyway. Even yeah. that's, that's basically the, the crux of his argument is that we, we can't do that anyway. We're always acting. So we should rec- acknowledge that we have the right to, to believe in things as they appear live to us, as, mm-hmm. you know, as live hypotheses to us. We have the right to act on those things, even when we don't have that evidence. Absolutely. Yeah. One more thing I probably should bring up. He talks about absolutists and empiricists. Right. Um, Yeah. I thought it was interesting that uh, when he was in, he was setting up his argument before he actually got into what I'd say is the meat of his essay. He did, he did kind of say, we're going to exclude uh, the skeptics in this argument. And we're going to go with this idealistic notion of how to think. And then he further breaks it down into how, when it comes to philosophy and looking at some of these questions that, yeah, there is this, there is the empiricist and there's the uh, absolutist. Yeah. Like I, I just wanted to touch on one point you just brought up. Like he said, we are on, you know, for the purposes of this discussion, we are on dogmatic ground. <laughs> yeah. Dogmatic ground. That's a good word. So that's, me, and all that means is is to say that they that everybody that's gonna you know take up what he has to say in this essay thinks that there is some truth that we can get our you know our minds to attain like that there is truth to discover yeah and he talks so he starts with that and that like you said excludes the skeptics that wonder if that there is even truth mm-hmm but once once you take that get on that dogmatic ground if you will then it breaks down into the absolutists and empiricists yeah and what i what so i do have to say uh not getting completely out of the summary but but kind of starting to transition into our thoughts as a whole um Mm -hmm. um but uh i i just want to say that one of the things that kind of brought me out of the essay and made it harder for me personally to actually get involved was that he was going from this dogmatic uh, ground and especially he's hunting. It it just seemed to me that he was hunting down capital T truth, um, a capital T truth, something that whether from the empirical side, we never really know we actually have ever reached or will reach or from mm-hmm. the uh, absolutist side that, once we reach capital truth, we know it. We we it's it's abundantly clear and aware, and that kind of pulled me out because I am I'm definitely more skeptical of an individual. I, I don't think there's any capital T truths. I think there's little T truths. So that that made it a little more difficult for me just to read through it because was it, it's just harder to read something when you're not completely or a hundred percent on board with with the idea. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. That's, that's a good thing to mention, I think. And I mean, I kind of, I was kind of able to push that aside because I tend to be more skeptical too, usually Mm -hmm. not all the time, but, but yeah, I definitely get what you're saying. Yeah. As I said, not to distract too much from wrapping up the major points of uh, the will to believe. But yeah, so he says, uh, the, the, like you said, you basically summarized the absolutists 
says he knows when he he knows when he knows mm-hmm. that the empiricist is always um he he can know he believes that he can know truth but he there's a certain degree of uncertainty that he always carries with him yeah, yeah. and he and james is definitely definitely defends the empiricist point of view um, and he critiques objective in this notion of objective evidence on the grounds that so many people have claimed objective evidence for completely opposite things, basically. Right. And, and that to him is, is, is reason for us to be open to, he basically says as empiricists, we should always be open uh, I, I, to a further evolving view. I think I may may have actually left myself on the page with a quote towards that, towards that point of why he's a, an empiricist. Uh, objective evidence and certitude are doubtless, doubtless very fine ideals to play with, but where on this moonlit and dream vista planet are they found? I am therefore myself a complete empiricist so far as my theory of human knowledge goes. I thought this... I, I like this quote because a it it highlights that point that I was talking about in which he can be very deep but also poetic at the same time to to yeah. describe the you know there's not a lot of philosophers that will do that and it's a, it's you know it's a where on this moonlit and dream uh, visited planet um, are they found yeah. it's very poetic and you don't find that a lot in philosophers and then but it, but he is making a point still right. That was that's a beautiful quote. I love I love that quote too because it's like <laughs> he's kind of I think he's I mean it resonates with me because I think this way, but he's trying to you know shake shake awake the people that are absolutists a little bit and say like just think of the possibilities though. Don't be so close down to your own system of belief. Right. Yeah, that was I love that quote. Yeah, I live to be sure. Uh, I live to be sure by the practical faith that we must go on experiencing and thinking over our experience, for only thus can our uh, uh, opinions grow more true. That's right. That's that's what I was referring to. Yeah, that's the other. That's that's just the next sentence. Yeah, I mean, kind of to transition now, just based on that last thought. Um. Um. Do you mind if I just? say one thing yeah uh, before you uh uh so i really enjoyed um how james left the essay he left it with that that pretty long quote but it was a it was a good quote because it summarized everything he ends it on this quote that i thought was really poignant but also it summarized everything uh pretty well um and i don't know if i should read it or not mm-hmm uh, the, oh, the, the quote again, the essay with? Yeah, yeah, um, by, uh, Fitz James, uh, Stephen. Yeah, that was, that was really good. I love that quote. Here, I'll, I'll just, I'll just read it. Um, what do you think of yourself? What do you think of the world? These are questions with which all must deal, uh, as it seems good to them. They are riddles of the Sphinx, and in some way or other, we must deal with them. In all important transactions of life, we have to take a leap in the dark. Very Kierkegaard. We have to take a leap in the dark. Um, if we decide to leave the riddles unanswered, that is a choice. If we waver in our answer, that too is a choice. But whatever choice we make, 
we make it at our own peril. If a man chooses to turn his back altogether on God in the future, no one can prevent him. No one can show him beyond reasonable doubt that he is mistaken. If a man thinks otherwise and acts as he thinks, I do not see that anyone can prove that he is mistaken. Each must act as he thinks best. And if he is wrong, so much the worse for him. We stand on a mountain pass in the, in the midst of whirling snow and blinding mist, though, uh, through which we can glimpse now and then of paths which may be deceptive. If we stand still, we, we shall be frozen to death. If we take the wrong road, we shall be dashed to pieces. We do not certainly know whether there is a right one. Uh, what must we do? Be strong and of a good courage, act for the best, hope for the best, and take what comes. If death ends all, we cannot meet death better. Yeah, that was, I love that quote. I actually shared that quote on, on Facebook in December the, after the first time I read this essay. Oh, nice. Yeah, because I thought it was so so good. And like I think it's good because it's, it's, it's an awesome attitude to have in the face of this life where yeah, there's not a whole lot of evidence for things, um, for a lot of things, not all things. Um, and, and yet we have to live anyway. Mm -hmm. So how do we do that? And, you know, he, he kind of says like, go take a chance and act, act on whatever live hypotheses, you know, you, you take up or, or whatever hypotheses are alive for you. Yeah, it and, and dash to pieces. So be it. That's the best way to go. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it is just a powerful quote. I think it summarizes. Um, I, I, I think James did a good job of choosing that quote to summarize. It, it does a good job of encapsulating what his essay is about. Um, because he is very much about you have a personal freedom to believe what you want to believe and you know it's not it's not your it is your right to believe that and it's other people's rights to either believe it or not um then you just have to keep moving forward as best as you can and uh, i thought that was a pretty powerful argument right. for, for faith in general considering there's there's lots of I feel like you see a lot of faith arguments put in the light of you either have to believe or you can't believe. It's that kind of that's it's that absolutist point of view, in which, um, but but not mm -hmm. when it comes to air. It's this absolutist point of view of this is the absolute truth uh, because this is what I've chosen to believe, and now you have to believe it. <laughs> or as I think he comes from a far more um, sympathetic and empathetic background towards everyone's individual beliefs if a man thinks forever whether or not asked to marry him he'll lose the benefits of knowing if, if she would have been like an angel as a wife like if he ponders that question forever just as just as much as if he decides definitively not to um, you know, marry that woman and marry some other woman. Like, that's kind of that's kind of his example for saying, we, you know, even even agnostics and skeptics, you're still making a decision 
um, even even if even by being in the sight of something. Right. Yeah. That you're you're still yeah. There's still a decision there, and it and and you're still choosing to believe something, even if that's not believing. Right. So that's that's him saying that we are faced with options to go back to his early more often than we think we are, where we have to stand on one side or other of a question. It might appear we can be indifferent is actually just like saying no. Mm -hmm. You know, because and, and he also used the example when he gets into the religious hypothesis. I think this is where I was wanting to go earlier. Like we make we make facts real just by uh, believing in its its possibility. So he says, let's see, page three fifty six. He says the desire for a special kind of truth here brings about this special truth's existence. So you have to like believe in something to be possible in order to reap some kind of benefit from acting as if it were possible. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty powerful point. Well, there's like this old saying or what, what, you know, uh, it's something about how, um, geez, it's, it's like, it has to do with, uh, closing doors. And if you close off doors, then you're closing off that option. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact verbiage. So let's They're like you miss 100% of the shots you don't take or something. That's it. Yeah, that's that's the saying. Yeah, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah. Yeah, he just he just um he's better at talking about it than just using that old line. So um you you said that this that you you got in you found this because uh uh you questions of dealing with your own faith happen to come up. I mean, did you find that uh, James's writing here, his essay here, "The Will to Believe," helped in in certain ways, fill uh, answer some of those questions, or is it just more that you you know it's going to be a continual search or something? Um, yeah, kind of. It provided it provided me a space to start to dream again, dream, if you will, or dream yeah. again. Oh wow. Like, or to believe in, I don't know, more magical outcomes that I used to believe in, um, but, but have kind of, kind of put aside because I've taken the perspective that he critiques in this book very often that what evidence is there for anything mm -hmm. kind of thing. So I'm not going to believe in that, but then it's made me consider um, the consequences of like, you know, the consequences of, you know, taking, taking a leap of faith and possibilities for my own life, or um, even, even, you know, specifically speaking, certain religious hypotheses, which have inspired me before. Mm -hmm. It's kind of made a space for me to act on those a little bit more lately. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Not to get us sidetracked too much, but there was a point while I was reading this that I um, uh, I started laughing because I was crying 
I literally started laugh crying because of what he wrote. And it, it's really, it's the dumbest thing. It really is the dumbest thing, but it's also, it's this like old archaic writing since he's writing uh, before the last turn of the century. And um, he uses this turn of phrase and it just, it got me because it was, he is making a point, but it's also, it's just funny how he, he wrote it. And he is talking about that idea of, uh, of, you know, of, of kind of what you're on about of that, uh, of inaction and, and, or action in the sense, um, you know, uh, in taking a leap of faith and why, why it's probably better to take a leap than not, um, and get distracted by all the errors. And I, I just have to reread. I just, I just have to say this. So the quote that got me was, um, uh, at what uh, forsooth is the supreme wisdom of this passion warranted? Dupery for dupery. What proof is there that dupery through hope is much worse than dupery through fear? The word that got yeah. me was the word that got me was dupery. It, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was just crying again. I, I found it this morning earlier this morning, and I was just crying over the dupery for dupery. And I was just like, because I, I was trying to think of. Is there any other way you can phrase this? I, I was, I was just, I could not, because uh, it does kind of speak to it, but it's also just silly. It's, it's very silly, you know. He, um, I, for one, can see no proof, and I simply refuse obedience to the scientist command to uh, imitate his kind of opinion in the, in a case, uh, where my own stake is important enough to give me the right to choose, uh, my own form of risk. That just got yeah. me. I, I found it funny. I don't know why. <laughs> Maybe because while I was I, I was initially reading this, I was drinking some whiskey. I don't. I know you don't drink, but I was drinking whiskey, <laughs> and I had just finished off, and I just happened to find the quote. And I was just like, "Dupery for dupery." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was. It, well. <laughs> That is that is a funny word. It's it's just weird. It's 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 also very childish. But I feel like sometimes you have to be childish, even with philosophy. I mean, it's a deep subject, but you got to find something to laugh at. And and I was I was like, I just I got into it. Yeah. <laughs> was there any really major takeaways for you? Um, you know, I I I would say my major takeaway was that. It's a powerful argument for a reason to, uh, uh, for, um, the right for everyone to believe and, uh, kind of an argument against zealotry. I, I would say, I don't know. What was, I guess, what was your biggest takeaway from everything? One of my biggest takeaways was how it was that point about how believing in certain things to be possible makes them possible. Mm -hmm. And he, he gives a couple examples, like how, that's how so, uh, any social organism operates. Like, you know, wherever a desired result is achieved by the cooperation of many independent persons, he says, its existence as a fact is a pure consequence of the precursive faith in one another of those immediately concerned. Like, they had, if you're working together with anything or working on anything or becoming anything in your life, it involves a faith that those that that life you're after is possible mm -hmm. yeah yeah um it's a good point to remember i thought that was a pretty powerful uh like social uh um 
sociological, you know, sociological point of, uh, point to make yeah. that, uh, I mean, I mean, we're doing a podcast on the faith that, well, we want to do a podcast and on the faith that, that we, we like philosophy, right? Like, like there's a faith there in a sense of, I just thought it was an interesting, that's also, yeah, that's a really great point that, that st- did stand out to me as well. Do you have any take major takeaways or burning questions? Oh, burning questions. Yeah, that's actually a big point. So what, uh, um, let's see, did I have a question that really, I would wonder, I was wondering just kind of, you know, um, philosophy has this interesting way in which it because it's slowly become very self-referential in which you're critiquing the last guy kind of thing. Unfortunately, because of the way time works and the way philosophy works, it, it means that usually those guys being critiqued can't critique the critique or they can't they can't talk on the subject that they're being um that you know that's being leveled with them usually like like if you're doing a criticism of plato or socrates or or kierkegaard or you know thomas aquinas or any of these guys that are dead they can't they can't speak to you on that matter even if it's a valid point or a provable point so i was wondering like in the sense of how would Plato take away with his ideas? What would his, because Plato definitely, when I was thinking about it, he's a, he's an absolutist. You know, Mm -hmm. truth when you find truth, you know, it all. And especially with his form land or how would, um, Kierkegaard see this considering it is very Kierkegaardian and, and leaping, uh, taking a leap of faith. But, um, it also is missing some of his his points of philosophy. Um, so I, I, that, that was kind of the question that I was wondering is, you know, what trying to put myself in, okay, if I'm Plato, how would I think about this? And it's not really a burning question per se, but it is more a perspective shift. Yeah, how would, how would an absolutist think of this essay? And... <laughs> There's absolutists on both sides of this atheist or Christian question. Like there, there as, are as one example, like Sam Harris and the new atheists. Like I'm sure they would have some uh, critique of this, of James's position. You know, right. they're absolutists. Yeah, and then but Chris, Christians, on the other hand, would probably support this because even if they're absolutist Christians, um. Because, well, maybe this would be a good essay for absolutist Christians to read because it would open them up to a more middle view. Yeah, I, I, that, that's what I was talking about uh, with my, with one of my big takeaways is that I feel, I, I felt like that this is a good argument against zealotry. It's against that absolute idea of, yeah, of, uh, of absolute, uh, and more towards that empirical side of, it's, um. It's it's this constant state of becoming, of knowing, of learning. Yeah. So uh, I guess I guess I'll, I'll ask. Uh, what's your burning question from this? Then, what what kind of sparked a question that, since you've you've kind of you read this a, a while back and you reread it now, um, mm-hmm. is there anything that's that's still that's still kind of every once in a while you think about? Yeah. So for me. I, you know, I, like I talked about how it was like it created a space for me to, to have faith again in, 
in various things, whether personal or religious. Um, but my question is, what are what are the live and dead hypotheses for me? Mm. Oh yeah. And what is just and just in general, what makes a live or dead hypothesis? Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm still on the fence about like what would kill a hypothesis for you, kind of thing. Yeah, like I feel like there's certain hypotheses that are dead to me, but that I that I take from, I draw from anyway for inspiration. Okay. Like I'm, I'm really, I don't really consider myself a Christian in all honesty. Mm-hmm. Even though recently I actually started going back to to church, the Latter Day Saint church that I I was a part of in high school. Oh, wow, okay. And so it's just dealing with that contradiction. Like I don't really believe there's anything magical about jesus christ's atonement and crucifixion and yet i can still go to church and be reminded of and inspired by his his life and how you know he loved and he was an example of love to everybody around him yeah no that's yeah absolutely so so that's like a really personal example of the hypothesis is dead but it's still alive in some sense for me (laughs) yeah to act on it so it's just that's that's my burning ongoing question of what is a live and dead hypothesis. That's yeah, that's actually a good question. Um it's it's one that I didn't really think too much on. Um mainly because I did I I read this over the course of several hours because I I'd stop and come back to it. So by the time I reached the end, I had I partially remember the hypothesis notion of there's a live one and there's dead ones. And it was also I had read I read that portion before I started taking notes. Yeah. So, so it's it's not something that I, I made note of, um, which I would have if I was, but um I couldn't. That's that you know, that's a really good one, you know. Um I don't know what my my dead hypotheses are or <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, <laughs> or, that's, or what have what have died, I guess. Oh, okay. What have died. Like which me. ones have died for you? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> right. So that's, that's the question I'm going to be left with thinking about because it's just interesting and, and relevant to my own life in certain ways. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, um, that's good. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Uh, so this has been, um, a lucid life. That is the name of our podcast, right? Um, yes. Uh, I hope you uh, have all enjoyed our first episode. Uh, we'll improve over time. We want to get more voices in. We want to kind of grow um, with it because we love philosophy and we want to know more about philosophy. I mean, we're not professional philosophers, um, but who is nowadays? Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like the world's full of armchair philosophers and uh, people who have, you know, you can easily access this information and never go to school and, and still have a pretty good wealth of knowledge when it comes to different philosophers, uh, if that is your thing. Um, but yeah, we very much want to grow and, and move forward. Hopefully we can get some more voices in, some people who maybe don't know anything about it and want to learn more and be there as the uh, unwitting and unknowing subject that we can tease. <laughs> with these ideas um or someone who's maybe a little bit more professional who has has a wealth of wealth of knowledge but uh we'll we'll grow and um that's that's it uh you can find us on um 
we uh we have we have a few social things we're we're slowly growing uh otherwise uh, most of the episodes will go out on patreon there is no membership right now it's just a flat if you want to donate a dollar to us we thank you but there is no perks right now yeah <laughs> it's just more to get out there uh as yeah. for as for where you can find us right now we're gonna do mostly uh spotify and google and apple podcasts